Hey, and welcome to Finlos Loves. I'm here with Eva, licensed therapist in Florida, and today we're going to be talking about the importance of the concept of decentering. And Eva, could you begin by giving us a definition for what that means? Yes, um, thank you so much for having me. I think at its most basic, decentering is being able to hold complexity. What does that mean? <laughs> right? <laughs> That's like the million dollar question. I mean, it. De- I think it would greatly depend depending on who you ask and cultural context, but um, it's an understanding that we ourselves as individuals are not the center of the universe. And I think the reason that's important is that 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 smallness that we feel when we realize that, um, it can be really frightening. And and it can also be really liberating. And when you say that um, the whole smallness, immediately I think of children mm. and how we, we continuously send this message to our children um, that everybody's experience is different. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we joke about the idea of FOMO and how our little one is constantly, <laughs> perpetually trying to make sure that, that, that they have access to the exact same experience that the other one has. And so that, that, whole, that whole point that we're trying to instill in them, that the idea that um, it's okay to have different experiences, um, and that's actually mm-hmm. something that we should, we should strive for, is that kind of kind of the the most basic idea of what decentering yes, is. Yes, you're actually it's it's interesting you're actually touching on a really important part of of decentering in the sense that decentering is a process of maturity. And so it's developmentally normal for young children to have this sort of lack of understanding that the world doesn't revolve around them and they already feel pretty out of control and unable to make a lot of decisions and do a lot of things and I think that's something that that sort of stays with us as we mature because we realize that you know we have this idea that we're going to get older and as we get older and bigger we'll have more control, right? <laughs> it's the opposite, though. Isn't it? Like the the older we get, and the more experience we gain, we actually realize we have less and less control, right? Isn't that isn't that actually what happens? Exactly, right? And and it's maybe and and I think maybe that's what what it's about is is realizing that um, that we need to let go rather than try to control things. And so there is something about teaching children to have some level of not control, but moderation of their of their emotions and let them feel into their feelings, right? Because I think that for a lot of people, they're used to sort of shielding mm-hmm. children from feelings. And that's really damaging. Because if they don't experience the fullness of those feelings when they're young, they grow up with this concept that it's unfair or that 
it's not normal to feel the intensity of any one thing, whether it be negative or positive. And, and ultimately, you know, I think Brene Brown talks about this a lot um, in terms of, you know, the, the necessary things for living a, or being a full hearted person. Um, and part of it is that you have to be able to feel the intensity of grief and despair to be able to feel the entirety of joy and fullness. And that's, that's the complexity. That's pretty scary. So I, I, I hear what you're saying in that it's a normal thing to Mm -hmm. sort of want to feel special Mm-hmm. Um, to sort of have this anxiety about, I guess, as we get older, not necessarily not being the center of attention, but getting a feeling that we're not getting maybe enough, like that, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that idea of enough. So, and I'm also hearing that you're saying that it's a developmentally appropriate for a child to not be decentered, for a child to expect and to need some level of special attention. But that as we get older, you're saying as a process of of maturation, we should be able to shed some of that. And that maybe, uh, I I guess what I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to find the language that that we're more familiar with hearing. Um, As as an adult, a person who is not decentered, how do do we describe them as? Um, Self-centered or um, egotistical or mm-hmm. greedy. I mean, are are those appropriate descriptors? Yeah, I think e- egocentric, almost, egocentric, okay. right? Like centering, egocentric. Um, if we're, you know, we we're limited to the language that that we have, and um, but you know, you said something I want to go back to because I I kind of hate that 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 idea and that terminology around like specialness, mm. um. I don't think that that's a universal. I don't think that's a universal thing. The idea of needing to feel special. I think what we all need and are looking for often is to feel that we belong, to feel that we have a place and a role. I think in a more individual individualistic society mm. that loses its meaning or I don't know what the right what the right word here is but I think that's what I'm seeing is that that it's almost an impossible standard to hold which is perhaps why it feels so elusive for people and again I I'm I'm trying to think of of ways to to express this abstract and in, in a and something that i can understand mm-hmm. um but I, again i think of our children and if we ever have a conversation about the, the potential of having another child right it, it makes sense that that one or both of our the children that we already have would have an anxiety about losing their place in terms of 
their identity or where they feel secure now in the patterns and the relationships that are already developed. Like the potential for that disruption could be very scary. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, I see that. I think it's a it's a fear of what is it going to look like to have m- my needs met. But I and I want to I want to match that with what you were just saying about how perhaps it we this is a result actually of of um of constructs and schemas that our culture have established as part of a nuclear family, right? It's mm-hmm. very, it's very nuclear family centric, whereas in a less um, and a less individual, more um, collective. Collective, thank you. Collective mm-hmm. sort of uh, environment. The language be less about you losing your place in terms of how much attention you're receiving, or or how how special to use that word you are, and instead you're actually gaining opportunities to build new relationships with this with this person. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's actually you're gaining. You're not losing anything. It's a it's a it's a a gain of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And do you think that that and I'm, I guess what I'm, what I'm, I keep coming back to this, this idea of childhood because I'm wondering if the reason why, as adults, we have so much, we still struggle with this, with this mm-hmm. decentering, with this egocentredness, and is it because we have, is it part of how we're raised? I guess is what I'm, what, what you're asking your thought, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's, it's absolutely about how we're raised and where we're raised. Um, I think it's impacted by a lot of things. I think it can be impacted by having parents who were neglectful or abusive. Um, I think, you know, it can even, and I think in, in the dynamics of 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 birth order, which we we tend to talk a lot about, like, you know who's the older and who's the who's the baby the baby mm. of the family right that even even birth dynamics can can play a role there particularly if parents didn't do a fair amount of of sort of scaffolding and preparing and if it did feel you know we we live in a in a society that looks at resources as if there's they are scarce and that is a collective fear Mm -hmm. that we hold from the time that we're very young and not just in terms of of whether there's a real right whether it's if if you're growing up in a family that is not financially stable and there's real scarcity and your perhaps your living situation isn't secure or you move around a lot or you know whatever the case might be um there's always that sense right and so i think it's very likely that your needs were not met Mm. from the time that you were very young and so yeah i think that there's a propensity for People in situations, uh, particular, and you know, I'd like to center the margins here, like particularly people at the margins, to have difficulty with this concept if they've never been held by community. We have this. We have you know, 
this illusion that we do have some some sort of identity uh, in this country as Americans or whatever you know whatever whatever it is um and i and i'm not trying to like downplay that there are strong communities in this country um i just think that there's a, a lot of harm there where where there isn't support for for what that actually looks like and where there's no real net to catch people as they're struggling. It's like where well then where is it? Where is that where is that support that allows me to feel like I have everything that I need and if I have everything that I need I'm a lot more likely to be able to pay attention to what somebody else doesn't have. What somebody else might be needing. So we've covered a lot of ground in terms of just understanding what decentering is. It's has to do with needs and it has to do, to do with also also being sensitive to the needs of those with whom we're in community. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also our inability to decentering has to do with a sense of uh, the idea that, that safety, whatever that's defined by whether it's uh, economic or, or, food or love mm-hmm. those are scarce commodities yes that's that's uh that's sort of the 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 water that we're swimming in mm. yeah so then the inability to decenter or and i'm reiterating and I, and and i'm and for our listeners i'm sorry if this is becoming redundant but it's almost a hoarding it's that mm. it, it's the idea that we're trying to constantly gather as much and in in relationship terms, which is what we're going to get to, mm-hmm. it's we're trying to claim as much of that as we can all the time. Oh my god, I love that. I I mean, I had never really envisioned it that that way. And yes, and to a degree, it is because it's like if when you meet someone who you can tell doesn't know how to decenter, that is a feeling that you get. Um, you get this feeling that no matter what you do with this person for this person that nothing will ever be enough so yes so what is the what is the consequence um if you are in if you have a a relationship strong relationships i think is what we're talking about whether that's um strong intimate friendships or romantic or sexual relationships um these are ideally relationships that are a give and a take where mm-hmm. there's a sharing, there's an exchange. There's reciprocity. reciprocity, yes. But the but by definition, if somebody can't decenter, it's a constant taking. Oh yeah. So what what is what is what happens if both are constantly taking? Like what what does this then look like in, in terms of relationships? Yeah. Um, it's I I mean I hardly ever see a dynamic where it's two people trying to take that that's not often the case and i think here one interesting concept is uh, you know i i hate to get into binaries and there is some some truth to the idea that people are gendered differently um on purpose mm. 
and that, you know, some folks are, you know, femme folks, particularly, um, you know, whether that be people assigned female at birth or, you know, a lot of trans women as, you know, and I would venture to say gay, gay men as well are expected to do the lion's share of care, of caring and giving, whereas people who are gendered more male or assigned male of birth or socialized in, in such a way are often a sort of, when it comes to emotional nurturing spe specifically, mm. are gendered more to, to sort of like be more demanding almost which is it's it's almost um contradictory in some ways because we teach a lot of young uh, people assigned male at birth that they should be independent mm -hmm. and yet you know the dynamics that i see come up in therapy are are very different right behind closed doors that's where the the neediness is showing up. It's where the and and it shows up very often as this unable, this inability to to decenter, to look at the needs of others, and needing a lot of catering to basically. And it sounds like you're describing almost an intergenerational grooming where mm -hmm. you have generation of girls, female body people, um, who. Or or not female or body. not female body people, but mm -hmm. femmes, yeah, um, who are raised with this very specific image of caring, and then um, they grow up, and then they end up in a very similar relationship as adults as their their mothers were, and yes. that's the model that they've they've kind of inherited. So it becomes so the the I don't often see two people who are both taking 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 because it wouldn't work. You usually you have you have the opposite concept. You have either you have like a pull pull push dynamic, or um, a dynamic where one person is taking a lot and the other is giving a lot, uh, and the result is that the person who's constantly giving often becomes resentful and tries to equalize the situation and in a lot of relationships it just ends in failure it ends in the failure of the relationship you know if it's if it's a, a communicative relationship often the person's trying to communicate it for a period of time <clears throat> before it really gets to to the degree that 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 person decides that it's not a situation that's going to be resolved. And then I can imagine that the other person, the taker, becomes resentful because all of a sudden the giving <laughs> is cut off? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, well, I think it likely happen, ha can happen in different ways. Um, it can happen in, in them feeling resent. And then seeking those those um, 
let's say resources, those resources elsewhere. Um, Infidelity. Infidelity could be one way. Yes, absolutely. It can be other other things too. It can be massive consumption of, you know, of media. It can be um, obsessions with hobbies. It can be. So you have you to know, a different form of hoarding. If we, if, if yes, if, exactly. If, if, if to use this model, if we're talking about <clears throat> an emotional hoarding, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. the 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 addiction has been cut mm-hmm. off. You know, to mix metaphors. You're gonna find right. something else to try to fill it with. Yeah, it can be it can be anything that that honestly anything that's going to restore that sense of, um, of sort of like closeness, nurturing, and and really if if we're gonna be real, like take it to the level of neuro neurotransmitters and and body chemicals, like you know you, they want you want your oxytocin, you want your, you know your feel good hormones, basically. And so if you can't have it interpersonally, you can get it in other ways. So it sounds like what you're describing is that a relationship founded on at least one participant being de- not being decentered is not healthy. It's not healthy. To say the least, and potentially catastrophic. Yes. And I'm also... I think trying to validate that 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 is what we're teaching kids often, unfortunately. And obviously, I think that what we're trying to to explore with this conversation and to validate is that we're not. This is not a rare thing. No, this it's is not. obviously describing the vast majority of. Not, I won't say vast majority, but a lot of people mm-hmm. are either in relationship with somebody. Who can't decenter or are themselves struggle to 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 be able to identify or empathize or extend their 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 understanding to potentially account for those of others. Yeah, and we and to a degree we glorify some of the ways that that people excuse not being able to to decenter, you know, by way of of let's say capitalism, for example, like the idea that that you are strongly driven and motivated by your work, for example, can mm-hmm. can be one, you know, one great example, right? Like who's going to be like, oh, you're you're not able to decenter because you're a workaholic, or mm. often that's that's. I mean, yes, we see the we see the issue, and you know, I've heard uh, recently of a friend of mine uh, was told by a colleague, you know, just remember, work is not going to love you back, <laughs> you know, and that's yeah, pretty profound, actually. Yeah, Lo- and it's true, love, you know, love isn't something that work gives you, and yet you have these organizations and i think this is another individual who brought this um who brought this to my attention that you have these organizations that literally feed on our fears and our needs for belonging by trying to create what essentially mimics a family Mm. in the workplace I mean the manipulation of that. I like I can't I can't 
start to deconstruct that. But because, yeah, there are situations where, you know, we all make friends at work, right? We spend we spend eight hours mm-hmm. of our day at work and at school and we're bound to to build close relationships with with some people and yet more often than not these are definitely not the people that are going to care for us when we're sick right who are going to sit with us through our deepest grief and you know hold back our hair when we vomit because we've had too much to drink because Mm -hmm. we're depressed you know, these are the realities, and yet... But yet, the, 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 yeah. the, I'm sorry to, to cut no, you off, but like no, no. the second that we don't meet that work right. thing, we are held to, to, to feel shameful or, or as failures because we let down our work family. Right. And that's, that's the sort of like the, the, the inherent manipulation. And I think for, you know, for, um, for me, I can say that, you know, there's like this, uh, you talked about like the, you said something about like this idea of like self-sacrifice, right? Earlier, it's um, that really preys, I think, particularly on people who have been taught that it is their job to self-sacrifice. Right. The the people who work so hard, they work so hard to the point of burnout, mm-hmm. and it's a and it's it's and it's unfair because we praise and Mm -hmm. we glorify all the way up to the point of burnout because Mm -hmm. the moment that they burn out their failures oh no then it's your fault because self-care right what happened that was your responsibility but everything up to that point was like rah 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 let's pull (laughs) another all-nighter yeah right and uh and and we when we start this even even earlier right we start this as as I, i would say in the school system too like we glorify like students who come home and spend hours studying instead of spending time with their families or instead of outside you know the same concept for when you get to high school we're pushing our kids to take the like i don't understand like you know to a degree i do understand because everything is financial Mm -hmm. at this point so if you can get a, a leg up on you know, high school credits while you're in middle school. And then when you're in, you know, when you're in high school, getting your college credits so that you're ahead of the game, um, you know, and, and that's, and that, I think that's a good word for it, game. It's all about knowing how to play this game. And yet, ultimately, it amounts to what? Like you get, you know, you get to, to adulthood and, and you start to realize that you, need to unlearn so much of what you were taught and it feels like you're starting completely over and the 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 immediate real world impact and we were just talking about this i think today is that you have people as adults essentially operating perpetually in crisis yes because uh but to use a word that we bounce around they lack capacity because they're working and they're also trying to meet their commitments to their friends and they're trying to meet their commitments to their families, and they're trying to meet their commitments for self-care, and they're trying to do their creative activities, and they're trying to do all of these different things. And it's just, a, and before we even pay the bills. And so we have this perpetual crisis. And then the simplest example, as we're walking our dog, you know, you ask the question, don't they care about 
you know, picking up their dog's waste because it immediately impacts our drinking water. And, and, and obviously the answer is no, because how could we think even about something so small Mm -hmm. outside of our own frame of reference, because we are walking our dog, but we're not really walking our dog. We're texting or we're, we're, we're not enjoying the, the, that experience as simple as it is, it's we're perpetually in crisis, which only reinforces this constant need to grab at anything that could just fill in those holes mm-hmm. and not connect us to remain us, keep us remained uh, isolated. Yeah. Well, and I think, I, I think it's, it's, um, you know, it's larger than that, right? We're, we're not just disconnected from one another and how our our actions impact one another but um there was um i'm trying to remember the name of the of the woman who wrote who wrote the book um but that everything everything even goes back further to how we treat or how we're in relationship to the earth too um and so that that example the the dog poo example it's like i care more about my dog than i care about my drinking water and your drinking water and our kids drinking water is is such a profound statement on like the here and now and no connection to past or our future and so really just being a disembodied people mm. and how could you care about the ground you're standing on if you can't care enough about the body that you're in So you're talking about unlearning. What what does that look like? If 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 we're basically, and I don't want to make excuses and don't hear that as me making excuses, <laughs> right? But but you know if we're if we're raised with this mindset and we're groomed to have these these norms, and we're expected to perform in these sort of ways, then what's the answer? What what how do we first of all? The first challenge, obviously, is hearing the feedback that, like, hey, mm-hmm. maybe you should not do that because you're. It seems as if you're only concerned with what's going on with you, right? Mm-hmm. And what what is what is the the for someone who has yet to tackle that sort of um, that sort of feedback? Like, if if this is the first time you're considering yourself as a greedy or self-centered or whatever you want to call it. If mm-hmm. that's what you're hearing, the reaction obviously is going to be defensiveness at oh, first. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Or lashing out. Yes. So what do we do? These are these are difficult questions. Um, I think, you know, I think people do have to get to a point where the dissonance is so great that that they realize that a, a a real change is needed. And I, I'm not saying that it's not worth being vulnerable and honest and direct 
with people with the behaviors that you're seeing. Just, I think, um, sharing the impact of behavior in a kind and graceful way is is always helpful. No, no matter whether the person can hear it in the moment or not. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, they'll <clears throat> eventually know that you were doing it because you cared. And because you didn't want, you know, you talked about impact, you know, the impact of not decentering is that you don't ever belong. That you're never really truly held by the people in your life and hopefully by a larger community. Right. Because I I guess... You know, and from experience, right? As we, as we challenge ourselves to decenter, the anxiety that we feel is we're losing. We're losing mm-hmm. something, right? We we're 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 giving up that that behavior of grabbing and hoarding, and so this the immediate sensation, right? It's like any diet. That first sensation is a sensation of loss, because mm-hmm. I no longer can eat that food, or I'm no longer doing this behavior, which gives me the immediate gratification. Right, so that's the struggle from from that perspective. Um, but the, you're saying the consequence of not doing so is actually to make that part of it worse, because ultimately you'll just lose the the people, right? Mm-hmm. So, but it, leaning into that initial discomfort is actually in that act of vulnerability tends to bring people closer. Yes, and I think the diet, uh, the language of diet, is actually a great example because uh, a diet is usually something that, I mean, depending on how you look at the definition, right? You can say uh, the human diet versus a diet, but we're I'm I'm using here the a diet um, definition in terms of it being something that you do for a time, and not something that is inherently a part of how you walk in the world or how you are in community with other people Mm. and so when you try on you know these these new behaviors but don't really have a way to inherently make them a part of who you are then you're bound you're bound to fail and Yet, when you're first learning to unlearn, that's exactly what you're doing. You're trying on new behaviors because they feel foreign and they feel hard. And you're going to stumble. And hopefully, you know, there are at least a few people who can hold that. Mm. Hopefully you've done a, a, a fair amount of holding for other people. That it makes it worth it, you know, for them. But yeah, it's hard. And I think that that's, a, that's a, a really integral part of what we're missing here, too, is that we can't just... I think our, our inclination often is to, when things get hard, is to just leave people behind. And that doesn't always work. Because then we have in, we have a community of people who have been left behind and are hurting, and because they're hurting, they're creating more harm. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be helpful to to take an example, um, and 
this was the inspiration for this specific conversation is uh, one of our favorite TV shows uh, on Netflix is called Sensate. Mm-hmm. And um, there is uh, a gay couple, uh, and Eva's going to help me with the names because I'm terrible with names, but it's uh, Hernando and Lito, and Lito are, are the, the romantic couple. And they, it, it, it is definitely a, a borderline, if not eventually a full polyamorous relationship. It's a complicated, it's a complex it's, relationship. Yeah, it's a complex with, relationship. But the, there's a woman. Um, da, uh, so Dani for sure or Dan, Daniela? Daniela. So the, the, the scene is hinging on the, the, the tension or the conflict that um, Lito is a, is a professional actor uh, in Mexican cinema and um, he has kept his 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 sexuality secret um, to protect his his professional life, um, but he's being blackmailed. And somebody has, because Daniela took photos of uh, Hernando and and Lito while they were intimate, um, her phone was taken, and it's now being held as a threat to out mm-hmm. the relationship. Um, so that's the setup. Um, so Lito's reaction is to panic and go to uh, uh, the worst case scenario, mm-hmm. um, which is my life is over, my career is over. What's the word that we use for that? Um, catastrophizing. He's catastrophizing. My life is over. My work is over. I'm going to die. Literally, mm-hmm. he says that. I'm going to die. This mm-hmm. is, and and he, his entire life breaks down in a, in a matter of seconds. Mm-hmm. And then on the opposite end, um, Daniela, who feels guilt and shame and embarrassment and all of these complicated feelings for having done this without permission, having taken the photo without permission, um, so she feels like it's her responsibility that that this has happened. She martyrs herself. She sacrifices yes. herself, and she says, "I'm going to make this right. I'm going to go back to this person who's an awful, awful abusing individual mm-hmm. because that's the price that we have to pay for these pictures not to be published." Mm-hmm. Right. Neither of those. She removes herself from her loving community, from her loving group. Yes. But it's still, is that still a, a, a that's not decentering though. It is decentering. It is decentering. It is decentering. It's, but it's, it's an exaggerated uh, way to decenter um, that again, it's, it's very much. Uh, I love that you use that example too because it you remember they're because they're Mexican and uh and uh Lito at least comes very much from the uh telenovela mm-hmm. um background. You you have this like sort of high drama and what I love about telenovelas and and you know t- by extension some of the um more graphic uh, fotonovelas and historietas is that that those gender dynamics. I think it happens in other cultures too, like in animes and stuff like that. The the cultural representations are basically caricatures right. of how we gender, and so even though Lito is not actually this person who he's pretending to be through his films and in, through his acting and his, in his life, 
doesn't feel safe being who who he really is. And Daniela, on the other hand, has a certain amount of privilege and and not at the same time. And is very much playing into, you know, her role, even though she preferred and was about to obtain a life of being able to be free, mm-hmm. then falls right back into her gendered role as sort of the nurturer, the protector, the, yeah, the martyr, the person who gives up everything that she cares about for her family. So she's actually living into the ideals of what it means to be a loving, nurturing person at her own detriment. At her own detriment. Yes. So then what's the middle ground? Who the third character? <laughs> right. I think I I I think that and and it's great because Hernando is sort of the um, plays both, right? And Nando is like this so, sort of, um, I almost want to say like uh, very masculine and very feminine. It's great. It's like a sort of gender fluid um, character um, and is the sort of linchpin between the two. He understands what he's losing and yet you know, there's this really wonderful scene. I don't know if you want to talk about it or if you want me to talk about it. Please. He's in the middle of uh, teaching a university class. You know, and university institutions are generally progressive spaces. And he's teaching about art, of all things, and very passionately teaching about art. And all of a sudden, one of the students has caught wind of this picture that has been released because it was released and makes it project onto the screen in the middle of class. And, you know, Hernando's being ridiculed and he owns this little, like the student who did it, like he looks at him and he's, and, you know, I think the student asks something along the lines of like, is this, is this art? Is this art? Yeah. Is this art? And, uh, his his response is priceless, and I I just like I can't do it justice right now. But it was he and what he does and and to to add to what Eva is saying, Nando. In his own words, and in the words of the other characters, he's perpetually seeking beauty. Mm-hmm. So on one extreme, he loves uh, wrestling. Mm-hmm. He loves uh, luchadors, mm-hmm. and he loves to go to live matches. Because he loves the energy and the 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 intensity, but he also views the it costumes. very much as a dance. Yeah. Yes. Um. But he in in the same vein that he loves teaching art and going to to museums because it's all art, it's all beauty. And so in this moment, when when the student asks him, "Is this art?" and he goes, "I don't know. What do you think when you when you look beyond the image of these two men in?" in an intimate moment unaware mm-hmm. because it's the unawareness mm-hmm. that is the power of the image. It's that these two people, he is one of them, were unaware that they were being photographed. What you see then is true intimacy 
and you see the beauty of these two people in a vulnerable moment mm-hmm. experiencing the love of each other's physical mm-hmm. and emotional intensity and it's just so powerful because he completely owns exactly as you said yeah. he owns not just the student but he owns the moment mm-hmm. and it comes an incredible emotional um cost because he has to remain strong in that moment and, yeah and, and the the class ends and he has you know the moment of like deep exhalation because it, it's it's mm. it's a charged thing to do but it, it's very powerful and he i think epitomizes that idea of mm-hmm. decentering because to go back to the crisis moment when mm-hmm. daniela goes to one extreme and lito goes to the other extreme hernando he he says, "What's the worst that could happen?" Mm-hmm. Like when we actually look at what the worst that could happen is, people get to find out who we really are. Right? Isn't that also liberating? And it's our and then our community is true because mm-hmm. this is this is we can be who we are, mm-hmm. and it's a really powerful moment. I I think the other thing that's that's uh that's amazing is that you know he's 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 there to teach and very much uses that as a teachable moment in the classroom you know and there are so many moments to teach one how to decenter i think the other um really important part and i hope that we're not ruining anything for anyone who might want to see the show um yes so don't listen if you're hoping to watch the show it's a minor subplot it doesn't it's fine i don't know about that but um (laughs) that Hernando, despite all that he and Lito are about to lose, specifically doesn't want Daniela to go and eventually leaves Lito because Lito kind of saw that as the sort of like the fix. Okay, Daniela goes back. Great. You know, and yeah, he's willing to accept it. Yeah, he's willing to accept the fact that Danielle is going to go sacrifice herself. Yeah, because it'll fix the problem. Yeah. Yep. So that's why I said that, like, that's the difference between, like, when you were saying that that Daniela was unable to decenter. I disagree. I think Daniela very much was decentering. I think she was doing it in a way that was harmful because she was then, you know, betraying herself. And mm-hmm. and I think self betrayal is is um is just as, as harmful as not being able to to decenter. It's like you decenter so far that you you're basically like past the margins, right. basically. Right. Yeah. And as a second example, um, and this one maybe you'll be a little bit quicker, but you know, we're presently watching um another show on Netflix called uh sex education and so this one might be a little bit more spoilery so Mm -hmm. if you haven't seen the show you might want to just fast forward past this part but um the main character otis and his best friend eric um they have a, a ritual that they do every year for eric's birthday where they go to see hedwig and the angry inch and they dress up in drag um and otis makes the commitment to 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 go together that they'll 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 ride the bus together they'll go together it's their tradition and you know long story short otis doesn't follow through he's distracted he he allows himself to 
he chooses to. I won't, that that's a very passive way. Mm-hmm. He chooses not to meet his commitment with Eric, and as a result, um, Eric ends up going alone. Um, he's robbed. Uh, it's 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 the worst case scenario for um, a person of color who is gay, who is also in drag, mm-hmm. like all of the worst things that you that you would. You, yeah, they didn't pull any punches. No, he's mugged, he's left alone, and then he's he's beaten up. Mm-hmm. Um, and we feel so terribly for him. And he calls, and we is he calling his mom? Is he calling his dad? And it's so great that. He, and it's such a powerful moment of vulnerability for him because he says, you know, I needed to call somebody where I would feel safe and I called your mom to come to your house because that's mm-hmm. where I feel safest. But because Otis gets home and he completely... Completely ignores. Ignores. Everything. Everything. He ignores that he abandoned his friend. He ignores that his friend got mugged. He ignores that his friend was beaten. And instead says, why do you have to make this about you? You are the one who's self-centered. I was trying to do this thing to help this other person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's it's painful to watch. Yeah. It's like he, uh, it's telling that he doesn't, at first he doesn't even notice um, Eric's face. Right. You know, Eric's got bruises and, and an open uh, cut on his face and um is not just that but his demeanor and his you can you can visibly see that his that he is in shock yeah that he's gone through some kind of crisis yeah and the acting in that moment is phenomenal yeah it w- it really was and i just like your your heart goes out and you want to you know any any normal well i don't want to say any normal human but most humans want to be there and just like hold eric's hand like hug him and um you know and try to reassure reassure him that the world is just not that horrible mm-hmm. all around even though horrible things happen and so Otis recognizes finally that his best friend has been hurt, and you think at least, and I'm thinking, oh, thank God he noticed. He's gonna, mm-hmm. he's gonna like do better now, right? Apologize, feel you know something, but no, he it it actually makes him even more intensely self centered because how dare you, you know, blame me mm-hmm. for what happened to you. And Eric is not even looking for that. Eric is just looking for safety, like the like the bare minimum human need of just feeling secure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and Otis doesn't give it to him on his birthday. On his birthday. <laughs> on his birthday. When it's an and and I think the more the the even more important part is that it's an annual ritual for them. Yeah. That he's now so like it's 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 not just like a small betrayal is you know that we I think there are a lot of things that we don't do the the um you know that were traditional rituals for people and so we try our best in communities to to build our own so when you betray a, a ritual um that's that's hurtful. And then when you don't recognize it, like when yes. the when the person has the vulnerability to say, 
I needed you. You weren't there. I needed you and you and you weren't there. Mm -hmm. And then to just completely blow through that, that unfortunately I suspect actually is the way it works much of the time. Mm -hmm. What we were talking about earlier when how do we begin to change that? The first reaction of of having it pointed out is defensiveness and lashing out. Mm -hmm. And it's no wonder that it's still a thing because if the very first person who tries to help you you hurt right back yeah is that that person a is not going to want to help you again and to make matters worse they're not going to want to help others because mm -hmm. their experience with trying to point out and to help you to grow is to have been hurt mm -hmm. um and i'm sure we can have a whole nother conversation about how do we regain trust after those moments? <laughs> but that's really scary and it's really hard. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that I think is really important about both of these scenes, and I, and I think that we were using these because they, they offer a lot of, of opportunities for exploration um, in the safety of, of an artificial situation. Right? Mm -hmm. We're not talking about ourselves, but um, both of these involve people of color. Mm -hmm. Um. And uh, varied sexualities mm -hmm. and varied levels of privilege. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's it's one of the cases where I think um, having models that are safe and and again, the sense that they're artificial are really helpful to to sort of explore these ideas, um, but also to find commonality because. I know that I've done what all of those people have done at different mm -hmm. times. Um, I don't know, but I'm hoping that by talking about this, that we can we can normalize it mm -hmm. uh, and offer some hope. Yeah, I think uh, I think that we've often taken things like movies out of the the realm of what their intention is often. Right. There was a time that storytelling was very much about that, was very much about teaching us lessons for for us to to really integrate. And now, unfortunately, when we consume media and shows on Netflix, we do and we do so in a way where we're not really thinking very deeply about the content area. We're thinking about it very in a very surface way, like, oh, my God, can you believe they did that? Mm -hmm. And a lot less like, oh, wow, I've done that, you know. So I think it's it's it, it gives me a lot of hope to hear you say that, to hear you say, you know, I can certainly think of, you know, of um, situations where I've failed people in my life and. You know, likewise, I, you know, I can um, see myself in a lot of, of these character interactions and particularly in the, you know, when we talk about uh, the Daniela character in times where I've engaged in a lot of self-betrayal. So I think we should wrap up with um, 
a little bit of practice. Okay. So uh, I'm going to be your your client. <laughs> and um, I'm going to come into your office and I'm going to say that my partner has um, indicated that there have been times where they have at first hinted and then over time explicitly stated mm -hmm. that they have experienced um, moments where they were expressing needs um, of support mm -hmm. and that I was unable to disentangle myself from my work um, to make them feel loved, to make them feel safe, to make them feel secure, and so that our relationship is now at risk of falling apart. How, what, are, what is something that I can do um, that is uh, a smart goal, mm -hmm. something that I can integrate into my daily life to begin the process of, I won't say, let's use the diet analogy, mm -hmm. of trying on a new behavior. Mm -hmm. what, what is a simple thing, a simple technique, a simple strategy, even a conversation starter that I can have with my partner to let them know first that I've heard them, mm -hmm. second that I want to change, mm -hmm. and third that I'm beginning the process. Like, it, it, are the, is that a reasonable? Is that a, like a reasonable order of operations? Is, is that does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think so. If the if you know if the person, I think it's a good sign when anybody comes in for therapy, assuming that they're that the first thing out of their mouth isn't. I'm here because my wife wanted me to come. <laughs> well, we'll assume that I have a good relationship with my therapist, and I've been seeing them for a while. Right, right. Because because when you hear that, it's sort of the 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 I'm doing the bare minimum to to uh, to stay in 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 this relationship because I don't want to uh, have a major upheaval in my life, which may not indicate that. You know, I think that because I mean, ultimately. I care about this person. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. not. It's not a fling. We've been in a relationship for a while. Right. Right. Yeah. I think. You know. I think that most most people who engage that way are are deeply uncomfortable, even with their own needs, and looking at the ways that that they're failing someone else feels really uncomfortable. You know, and so it's it's interesting because you, the question is really like, how can I show the person that I'm committed to change? And really, the the way to show the person that you're committed to change is to work on yourself, so that they're not having to work on you. You know, and so, <clears throat> but in terms of of how to bridge the divide there often is to to reflect back what you're hearing in a non-defensive way you know and it's it, you know and i think it's normal the first couple times and so I think that a therapist can be an ally in the sense that the therapist can say things you can get pissed at a therapist mhm mm you know, and that's their job. Their job is to tell you hard things. Hmm. And, uh, and ultimately, at the end of the day, because they're a professional, often you're not going to treat your therapist the way that you 
treat the person that you love at home, mm. um, often you're not going to show them your ass the way that you show your loving partner your ass. And that's just real. That is just real. Do you mean that you want to impress your, <laughs> your therapist? You do. Okay. You do. And, you know, and your, your therapist is there, you know, both to be your, your cheerleader and also to hold you accountable. And I think that, you know, the other reality is that not all therapists are awesome. Like there are, you're going to have, you're going to, you know, I think I can say from experience that I've had some really bad therapists. Therapists are human too. Mm -hmm. And they have their limitations. And so I think one part is to get real, like what kind of therapist do you need? You know, and is your therapist actually doing the work that you need to do? You know, are you a good fit? Um, is this person going to call you out on your bullshit? Mm -hmm. You know, and how are, and so for me, it's a good sign if an individual does have a moment of, of anger where they lash out anywhere near the way that they would lash out with their partner then you know you've got a good fit. Okay. Because that is practice. You're practicing. And, <laughs> you know, and... But yeah, don't abuse your therapist. Don't right? abuse your therapist, obviously. <laughs> obviously, but the therapeutic relationship acts as a microcosm, acts as an example of how you actually relate to people out in the real world. You know, so if if your if your relationship is very surface, and you're not really getting anywhere, then maybe it's not a maybe it's not a great fit. You know, and and something else is needed. Now, if you're hearing the right things, if you're hearing that you're you know you're deflecting, that you're you're not really getting deep, if you're hearing similar messages from your therapist, you know, then the messages you're getting from your partner then something is playing out there and, and that's a, a good place to kind of like, that's, that's your experimental kitchen right mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. you know, for cooking up some, some stuff. And, you know, I think I'm trying to think what's been helpful for us um, in communicating um, around change. I think a lot of it is just, you know, knowing when a partner is needing reassurance knowing how they like to be reassured you know and trusting that that they keep coming to you to 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 have difficult conversations mm -hmm. i know that it's it is a challenge to hear feedback and not hear criticism mm -hmm. um and so if I'm offering advice mm -hmm. to people who struggle to dissenter, um, it's that's a that's a that's a, a huge shift mm -hmm. to have to to have to internalize is that when people share how your behaviors and your actions and your communications are potentially harmful. Like that's an act of vulnerability in itself. Yes. And it is an act of faith in you that you can first hear it mm -hmm. 
and an act of trust that you can hear it and actually take it in. So just the conversation of itself should be a reassurance. Yes. That, because I know personally, one of my reactions to to those sorts of setbacks is panic mm-hmm. and catastrophizing and, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing all of those sorts of behaviors. And so thankfully with, with, with therapy and practice with you in conversation, um, not perfect all the time, but, you know, over time, telling, reminding myself that this is a conversation. It is not, it is not an attack, right? It's it's mm-hmm. it's it is help. It is love. It is mm-hmm. care. It is the desire to help you be the person to help me be the person that I want to be. Mm-hmm. It's a recognition that there is room for growth. Mm-hmm. So I think that that I think communication above all else is the foundation for it, mm-hmm. um, and an acceptance of your partner's vulnerability and a willingness to be vulnerable yourself, which is often, often the hardest part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but for, because um, I think you were hope, maybe hoping for a more concrete way to to approach. Um, you know, I think that there are, there are times when it's a better time than others. So I think checking in and just like starting by saying, hey, you know, there's there's something that's been coming up for me that I'd really like to talk about you know can we set a time to do that or is now good you know and allowing that person you know most people unfortunately they're gonna immediately go to the worst place Mm -hmm. right but if you're like it's not a big deal we don't have to have it right now you know kind of like setting the tone that it's it's important but it's not the end of the world and Definitely setting some parameters around, you know, how long you'll talk, how um, how you'll take breaks if necessary, you know, not uh, not stonewalling. You know, I think that that that's one of the really harmful ones is when when people when things get tough and one person just walks out of the conversation and. Because there's an immediate, especially if you if you are engaging in that sort of push pull dynamics, the moment somebody runs away from the conversation, the other person's going to pursue, mm-hmm. and <laughs> and it is it is the show showdown <laughs> of the century. Um, so you know if 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 I think taking breaks is fair, and you know setting some parameters around you know I'm not I don't I'm not leaving this conversation i do need a break from the conversation because and i think we're you know there's a lot of research out there about reactivity too and and again unfortunately a lot of the research is super gendered um but the but gottman um has that book out the science of trust uh and talks about like just physical reactivity for male-bodied people physical like measurable reactivity anytime you bring up an undesirable topic Mm -hmm. and their system immediately goes into fight or flight you know and so that's that's a reality apparently (laughs) um 
you know, and I think that has repercussions not just for relationships, but uh, not not just I'm sorry, not just romantic and sexual relationships, but um, relationships with you know coworkers and colleagues and um, you know family members as well. You know, and and um, I think it, they they specifically found that you know if if the situation gets pretty heated. It's it's at least twenty minutes, at least a twenty minute break mm-hmm. during those periods. Let those hormones kind of resettle. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's with no, um, you know, when you're talk when you're adding in concepts of like trauma and, you know, mental health, then you have a completely different ball game because, you know, then triggers enter the landscape and so you know they talk they say that knowing your partner's triggers if there are some or is is a love language unto itself knowing when something is coming up for your partner becomes really important because you can name it and the moment you name it you can really bring down that level of not not just insecurity but that level of um nervous system activation so sort of like a de-escalation of the situation by just naming. I can tell like something's coming up for you and I'm wondering if it's related to, you know, I know that, I don't know, you can say, you know, I know that you're, you always felt so highly criticized when you were a kid. That might just piss them off though. So you never know. You never know. <laughs> Any closing thoughts? Just uh, knowing that it's always going to be a work in progress. We should always be growing. It's hard, though. It is hard. But worth it. Worth it. Absolutely worth it. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll tune in again next time. It's a blooper. Blooper. Blooper.